Hey guys, welcome to the sermon audio for Nashville Baptist Church. Listen, uh, we were blessed with some new sound equipment this week, including a brand new soundboard. Uh, but with new technology comes a pretty steep learning curve. And so we actually had some problems this week capturing our sermon audio. We still captured something. Uh, it's just very low uh, quality. And so uh, we decided to go ahead and post it anyways. Uh, so uh, hope you can enjoy it if you can hear it at all. Uh, be sure to turn up your volume a good bit and uh, we hope it blesses you. Uh, so Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, the text is going to be behind me on, on the screen, so just a little bit of your own Bible. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room back to If you don't own a lot, you can buy and take that physical one home and read for that. Uh, we the guys work all kinds of things, including the women themselves and the people. So if you don't have a Bible outside of this book, we want you to die. You read the Bible themselves, so if you don't have a Bible, take that home, start reading it, and uh, we'll call that a really good thing. Um, while you're turning there, uh, I just want to say a quick thank you. We had, a, we had a bunch of people up here yesterday. I think about like, 26 or 27 people that came out of our school today. Uh, as most of you can tell, the grounds were a lot better than they did last week. Uh, things were fixed on the snow plow, and there's like mulch out there, we fixed our flower beds on the ice, and there's a lot of cleaning that happened here, and there's a lot of acres of repairs that happened here. And so uh, uh, we had a lot of folks playing all kinds of roles, and so uh, here we say thank you for that. Um, our, our place is in kind of shit shape for uh, the, the next few months to come, and uh, I'm excited about that. So we are on the back end now of a series uh, that we're calling the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. Uh, we kicked this off a couple of months ago, and it's going to lead us all the way up through next week, through Easter Sunday. Uh, and uh, the whole premise of the series is really simple. In, in, in Matthew chapter 4, we're told that Jesus is going around uh, kind of inaugurating the kingdom. He's, man, he's healing people of sickness and disease. He's casting out demons. He's freaking powerfully in the synagogues in the region of Judea. And he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew tells us in chapter 4. And so Jesus is kind of inaugurating this kingdom. But this kingdom is different from the rest of the world, right? right? This kingdom is kind of upside down and values different things than, than the world tends to value and chase after and make a priority in life. And, you know, on the face of things, you would think that's probably not a good strategy for building an organization, building a kingdom, right? If you're going to do things in a way that's completely upside down, what most people tend to value, people are going to tend to go, ah, that's not for me. The problem is that Jesus is way smarter than you and I are, and, well, he's got the legs to make it work. And so Jesus inaugurates this upside-down kingdom, and he just kind of walks through, and each day this kingdom just keeps tracking forward, and, well, God promises that one day, one day it will be here in fullness. And it's eternal force that promises that Jesus is going to undo Every single wrong that happened in the garden. Of course, my favorite children of the Bible puts it, he's going to make all the sad things come untrue. Does anybody not want that day to come? Don't you long desperately for his full and final kingdom to arrive? This, this kingdom may be already, but not yet. One day, the not yet part will be long gone. And I long for that day. I want it to come quickly. And so last week, our friend Chris Horrell stood up here and walked us through the transfiguration, what Christians call transfiguration. Jesus takes his 
three innermost disciples, the guy that sees four in the two boats, Peter, James, and John, he brings them up on a mountain, and the Bible tells us that Jesus is transformed before their eyes. That, that we get a little picture of his heavenly glory. They get to see Jesus as he is in heaven. And he kind of shines through his humanness, whatever that means. I'm not exactly sure, I just know it's awesome. Right? And, and, and Chris helped us understand last weekend that Peter is rare to go, man. Like, like he wants to just camp out there on the mountain forever. He wants to just spend the rest of his days in this moment. And but then somehow the dial gets turned from 10 to 11, and then Moses and Elijah show up. The great lawgiver and the great prophet of God are all of a sudden standing there just chit chatting with Jesus. Like, do you know you not want to hang out in a moment? Like, does anybody not want to just be a fly in the wall in their conversation? Just, hey, can I just sit here while you guys talk? Like, you ever been in a moment where you were around people that are obviously way more important than you, and you just want to be there and just hope they talk to you, too? That's never happened to me, ever. Peter wants to just hang out there forever. But, but Moses and Elijah, they understand that Jesus is not on the same level with them. And Peter's idea, well, well sounding nice. Well, Jesus doesn't have time for that, and Jesus came for a purpose. And so thanks, Peter, for knowing this. And they just kind of keep talking about each other. The Christmas is understand as we did. And this King Jesus, the one that got a tiny little peep of for just a moment. Saying, who is this? 
And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so Jesus and his followers are moving decidedly to Jerusalem, towards the cross. And so Matthew tells us, and uh, the other gospel writers make it clear also, that, that Jesus is determined to make it to the cross. There's nothing that's going to stand in his way here. And so we see here the beginning of that end. He finally arrived to Jerusalem. And we're told that the route that they take leads them to a little village called Bethpage. And I'll just be honest with you, we have no idea anything about Bethpage. Like, we're not told anything pretty much else about Bethpage anywhere in the Bible. Luke's version of this story tells us that Bethpage is near another village called Bethany. Alright? We do know a little bit more about Bethany. We know some people that Jesus had a close friendship with at Bethany. He stays at Bethany a couple times. So we know a little bit more about that. But we're told that both of these villages are on the Mount of Olives. And we know a ton more about the Mount of Olives. Get this. The Mount of Olives is a mountain with a bunch of olive trees on it. Because <laughs> like I tell you all the time, religious people are really creative when it comes to naming stuff. That's what's special about the Mount of Olives. But there's a second thing that's special about the Mount of Olives. It's a mountain right outside of Jerusalem that's higher than the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is it's on a mountain, that's how that works. And, but there's other mountains around Jerusalem, and, and some of the mountains are higher, including the Mount of Olives. And just around the Mount of Olives is on the temple side of the, the, the mountain that Jerusalem is on. So if you're on the top of the Mount of Olives, you can look down all pensively like on the temple. And Luke's version of the story tells us that when Jesus sees the city, he weeps over it. He gets there, he's, he's broken over their refusal to repent, he's broken over their hardness of heart and bottles and peace. And so they begin walking up the Mount of Olives and they get to that page. And everything is starting to stir. There's a buzz that's building. But there's something interesting about the timeline. Jesus is coming to the city of Jerusalem right before the Passover. So what's the Passover? Passover is important because faithful Jews from all over the Roman Empire would begin to travel to Jerusalem in order to celebrate something special, a feast that celebrated what? The Exodus, right? So in the book of Exodus, you got the ten plagues, if you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you don't have much of a church background, you got the ten plagues, and God rescues his people out of Egypt. But the, the final plague is what? The angel of death passes over the land and kills the firstborn, except for all those who put their hope, put their trust, put their faith in God, and do about that fact. They paint blood on the doorpost of the spotless land. And God commanded them to remember this moment every year. So they, they celebrated Passover. If you were faithful to you, if you were the one going for extra credit, you didn't do it at home. You went to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so uh, we're told that 
about this time in history that Jerusalem was normally running about you know, two or three hundred thousand people. Except during the major peace, when the city would just swell with all these people who had come into town. And so we're told that during this time, the, the population of Jerusalem would go from like two to three hundred thousand to like two million. There's a buzz in the air, right? Like there's a lot going on in the city. But it seems like everybody's talking about Jesus. I mean, and think about it, right? The guy who's been performing miracles in and around this area for the last three years, the guy who had been healing people of terrible disease, and there's rumors that he even raised the dude from the dead. And he's been teaching with an authority that put all the religious leaders in their place, right? Like, that guy is on his way into town. You think you want to get a little piece of this guy? You think you want to see for yourself just a little bit about who this guy is? I mean, this Jesus is coming into town. So what happens next? Well, a coronation happens. A coronation happens. Coronations are a really interesting thing. Matthew tells us that Jesus rides into town on a donkey as people throw their cloaks down and palm branches down for the donkey to walk on. He tells us that there's this excitement and this, this, this celebration and people are singing songs and rejoicing. And this is exactly how a king would ascend to the throne in their world. It's also pretty similar to how a king would ascend to the throne in our world. I, I spent some time this week trying to read a little bit about coronations, uh, specifically the last couple of British ones. And man, that is a rabbit hole you can get stuck down so deep into. Wikipedia got me all kinds of weird places this week. But coronations are a weird thing. They're a weird display of pageantry and authority and majesty and, well, honestly, just sheer opulence. I mean, that, that, there's a, that's a ton of what's going on. Just, just a showcase of the glory and the honor of this ascending king or queen. you got a giant parade with courtiers and armies and dignitaries and a band, probably. Everybody's making a big deal. The entire point of the coronation is to show that this new king is above and in charge of everybody else. I mean, there's other stuff obviously wrapped into that, but there's reasons why lots of money and lots of pomp and circumstances around that new It's to showcase this new king. For, for instance, um, with Queen Victoria in 1838, she awarded a crown. Uh, that was described in one place that I read as containing giant rubies, emeralds, and diamonds. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I'm going to go ahead and assume it's just sounds more overstated than it is. Right? Yeah, it, it's probably just nothing at all. <laughs> but here's the deal. That's not the only crown she wore. She actually wore three crowns in the process. She wore one crown during the parade, and then she turned on another crown while they did something, and then she ended with a third crown. She's got three crowns? I don't have a single crown. <laughs> Maybe she'll give you one? Probably. But when it comes to the opulence of this event, Queen Elizabeth II is the one who takes the cake. 
because the scepter that she was presented in 1953 when she was coined is called the head of sovereign scepter, and it looks like that. Completely understated. So that cross thing at the top, those are diamonds, and the emerald, uh, because she's the head of the Anglican Church, and so she, she needs some religious symbolism there. I'm going to go ahead and assume that that emerald is more expensive than anything I've ever owned. Maybe you're different than me. The purple globe-looking thing beneath it is called a composite amethyst, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. Probably, I don't know. But it's a globe because she's not just the Queen of England. Then we're talking empire here. So that's supposed to represent the world. And then that tiny little diamond-looking thing underneath that, that's a diamond. <laughs> Five hundred and thirty carats worth of diamond. Yeah, just just soak it in. <laughs> so what is the point of a scepter like that? It's to show that the monarch is better than you, more important than you, and definitely richer than you. It's to show that they're in charge and you're not. And so to be handed a scepter like this during your coronation is an intentional, uh, it's an intentional attempt to paint a very specific picture of who the king and queen is and who you're not. That's the point of the scepter. But then you have King Jesus. And his coronation looks just a little bit different than Queen Elizabeth II. Right? Instead of courtiers and jewel-encrusted diadems, we, we see him riding instead on a donkey. It's not because he doesn't deserve things like that and created things like that. It's just because he's trying to paint a different picture of who he is. He's sending a different message. And we can actually learn several things uh, uh, about the character and the reality of Jesus as we just kind of walk through this coronation. So look with me again at verse 1. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Okay, so we learn here that Jesus is the divine king. The divine king. I mean, let's, let's play out this picture real quick. Right? He, he gets to uh, the entrance of Beth Page, and he says, No, 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 no. I go into town. He sends a couple of his boys into town. Go get me a donkey. You'll go to this, the, this house. You'll find a donkey. You'll find a colt. And then take them and bring them back to me. If anybody says anything to you, you, you should tell them the Lord needs them. So what do they do? They march on into that page. They find a colt and a donkey tied up exactly like they expected them to because Jesus told them that the Lord would be there. They get to untie the colt and the donkey and they start making their way back to Jesus. And then the owner of the colt and the donkey have a few questions for the guys that are walking off with the colt and the donkey. Like when you, hey, where are you going with my donkey? Is that how you would react? How I would react? 
Um, the, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> walk back to Jesus. Like, what are you doing now? All right. Sounds great. The implication is very big. Is that Jesus has complete authority. Not only over the condition and the placement of a couple of animals, but also the heart and the attitude and the disposition of their own. Complete authority. Jesus has complete authority over the placement of a couple of animals, the, the ordinary daily chores of a donkey owner in Bethpage. He has exactly as much authority over that moment as he does over any red-letter event going on in Jerusalem down the hill. Jesus is complete authority over all of it. He is the divine king. But that's not all. There's another layer to this. Jesus tells them that if anybody asks what's, the, what's going on, he says, tell them the Lord has need of them. Not my, our Lord, not my Lord, but the Lord. Has needed them. It's common for people in our culture to wrestle with, well, did Jesus ever really say anything about that? Did he really claim to be God? I mean, didn't, didn't he just play the meek and mild teacher role when his followers come in later and kind of add some of that stuff in? You know, Jesus says this stuff all the same time. It's all throughout the gospel accounts. Jesus claims his divine authority as the sovereign king of everything. The Lord has needed them over and over again. We see him say things exactly like this. It's all throughout the gospel. Now, if I were to say something like that, you would correctly assume that I am blind and arrogant. But, well, <laughs> Jesus is also simultaneously ordaining the placement of donkeys. I can't do that. And you can. I can't do that. So I guess Jesus did too. He is the divine king. But as neat as that part of the story is, it's the next part that's really the only thing ever told. This took place to, uh, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a feast of Burden. Okay, so we pointed out a few times throughout the series that Matthew's overarching point in writing his gospel account is to show that Jesus is not just the Messiah, but the promised, prophesied Jewish Messiah. That, that he came to fulfill every single thing that the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would be. Right, that's Matthew's larger aim. So Matthew tells us here that the whole donkey situation is playing out for the express purpose of fulfilling something that happened that was promised earlier. And that something is in Zechariah chapter 9. So hold your finger in Matthew and flip with me to Zechariah chapter 9 real quick. We're going to come back to Matthew. Zechariah chapter 9. If you don't know where that is, it's in the Old Testament, but it's not very far in the Old Testament. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Just start moving left. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And right before Malachi is Zechariah. So you don't have to move very far. If you get to Haggai, you've gone too far. Zechariah chapter 9. 
Zechariah is a prophet to God's people after their return to Babylon. And, and while things have obviously gotten better, I mean, they're not in slavery anymore. Like, that's a, that's a good day. And, and, and they've rebuilt the temple by now, and that's a good thing. And they've rebuilt the city walls by now, that's, that's a good thing. So things have gotten better. But there's a feeling in the air that, that things aren't good yet either. That the glory days are long gone. And their history leading up to Babylon attacking them is, is pretty poor. I mean, it's a long string of one bad king after the next. And each king seemed more sinful than the last, more wicked than the last. A generation passes, and after many years, they're home again. Things have been rebuilt with the glory days, and it's, it's over. I mean, forget about good king versus bad king. Israel is nothing more but a vassal state of the Neo-Persian Empire. They have no authority over themselves. So if you're living in this time period, don't you just wish for the glory days again? Oh, if we could just get a good king in here once more. Then we finally be in a good place. And that's when the prophet Zechariah steps up. And in chapter 9, immediately after prophesying that God would enact wrath and bring judgment upon the wicked nations around them, he says this in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, so follow me. 500 years, 500 years before Jesus steps onto the scene, a prophet that many of you might not even know existed before I told you about him today, right, is promising God's people that this day is going to play out exactly like this. That the triumphal entry is going to play out specifically with the king riding in on a donkey, the, the cult of a donkey, the cult of a foal, whatever that is. Jesus is not just a divine king. He is that, but that's not all he is. He is also the promised or the prophesied king. He came to fulfill everything. And instead of being like a long line of kings that they knew, kings that through their sin, through their uh, just evilness, led them to wrath, led them to their destruction and their downfall, Zechariah says that this coming king, this future messianic king, will bring salvation to his people through his righteousness. Instead of like the long line of wicked kings they knew and were familiar with, this righteous king would lead them to salvation. So we may never step into this because. Well, Matthew only quotes verse 9. Well, Zechariah is not anywhere done talking about this future good king. So look at verse 10 with me. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, so Zechariah tells us that this future king, the reign of this future king, will be marked by peace. 
And if you're a country, a people who have been marked by war and marked by bad kings and marked by enslavement, don't you long for just a little bit of peace? Nobody gets to attack God's people anymore. Chariot and war horse, he tells us, will be cut off forever. No one even gets to come into the city anymore. They'll be held back. But he also says that this king and his kingdom will include the nations. And that's really interesting because Zechariah is talking to an Old Testament people operating under an Old Testament covenant. Up to this point in the history of God's people, from Abraham to this day, God has been working with one people, the Jews. He had a covenant of people, and he gave them himself, and he gave them his law, and he gave them his presence. And in all of these things, they were the ones that were going to bring hope to the world. He was working with one people. But Zechariah tells us here that it is a part of God's plan, and it has always been a part of God's plan fold the rest of the nations into his blessing. That this peaceful, righteous kingdom will not be only for the Jews, but for all. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, it has to be remembered. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Right, so this future king will rescue prisoners and restore them through his blood. That sounds like somebody else I know. 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior sword. 14. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The, God, the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the slinging stone. <coughs> Excuse me. They shall devour and tread down the slinging stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the quarters of the altar. The, uh, Zechariah says, this coming king, this righteous and peaceful king, will bring unmatched rejoicing. The bowl of wine is not going to run dry. It will bring feasting forever. But then 16 says this. On that day. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, maybe, maybe giant rubies, diamonds, and emeralds, I don't know. Like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his land, on his land. 17, for how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Zechariah tells us that this coming king will save his people, and he will save them forever. And it's not because they are something that he needs. It's not because they bring something to him that he desperately yearns for and has to have and needs to lock down. No, it's because of his goodness and his great beauty. It's because of his character and not theirs, they say. This king's 
like nothing that God's people have ever seen before because this king is no ordinary king. This is the Messiah. So back to Matthew. This is the Messiah. Jesus begins his journey heading to Jerusalem. He tells him, go get my donkey. I gotta have a donkey for this. Go get it. They bring the donkey and it starts off in the town. And verse 8 says this. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and on that, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered... Hosanna in the highest. Alright, so 2 Kings 9 tells us, it explains it in a circumstance where a king uh, has a bunch of people laying down cloaks and coats for the king to walk on. So there's biblical precedent for this. Like the, We see this in another place in the Bible, but like even if you didn't know that, does anybody not see this as a, a huge sign of showing honor? Like that's what's going on here, right? You don't let the donkey walk on your coat unless you think that other person is more honorable than you. That's how that works. But even though that's a really big deal, the weight of this moment is not in what the crowd is doing, but what the crowd is shouting. Hosanna is a Hebrew phrase that means, oh, save us. Oh, save us. There's, there's honor and there's desperation in that cry. Save us. And they also call him the son of David. That is a direct reference to 2 Samuel 7, where we're told that a descendant of David would sit on David's throne forever. If you are a faithful Jew, you don't give that title to just anyone. It would be a bad idea to just throw that nickname around. It's interesting because Jesus calls himself that all the time in the gospel. But here we see the crowd recognize it. So here we are. Everybody's making a giant commotion as King Jesus rises into the city. Hosanna in the highest, they say. Verse 10. When we entered Jerusalem, the whole city was started up saying, Who is this? Look at the buzz. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, the city is swelling with people right now. It's bursting at the sea. Like, how does Jerusalem hold two million people? I don't know. It's bursting at the seas. And the buzz is growing by the moment. So here's an idea. How about we see what King Jesus does when he arrives in the sea? Like, right? He arrives triumphantly there. Let's see what Jesus does when he arrives. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you may get a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? I have you prepared praise. 
17, leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Okay, so King Jesus rides into town and goes straight for the epicenter of the buzz. He goes through the temple. But it's not just about being where all the people are. Follow me here. The God of the temple walks into the place that was built specifically for the worship of Him. We're talking about a red letter day, guys. Like, that's a big deal. Jesus, the, the, the Lamb that was going to be slain, the one who gave directions for the temple to be built. Like, He spelled it out for them. This is what the wall should look like, and this is what the curtain should look like, and this is where the altar ought to be placed. Those were His words. He walks into the temple. And what does he find there? They worship. Many people get tied up with the fact that the folks are buying and selling things. I mean, he just does get angry at there, right? He's not exactly pleased. So many churches tend to have policies around uh, forbidding things like uh, fundraising and selling things and those kinds of things. Because that seems to be a problem in the text. But there's a problem with that logic, though. And the problem is that if you only focus on the fact that they're selling stuff, you miss the much larger theological problem that's being pointed out. The temple, if you don't know, if you've never seen a picture of it, I think about it now, I probably should have provided a picture of it. But the temple is kind of divided into shrinking sections. Right? And how far you could go into the temple was directly dependent upon who you were. Right, so the outermost court was called the court of the Gentiles. And that was where the Gentiles could go to. Because religious people named things. Gentiles could go to that court, court of the Gentiles. Inside that court, there was a section for Jewish women. Inside that court, there was a section for Jewish men. And you had a section for the priests. You had a section for the high priests. And you get out of those. And so when Jesus walks into the temple and finds the vendors and the money changers there, he's in that first largest court, the court of Gentiles. When you think about it, like, like money changers and sacrifice sellers being there actually makes a ton of like functional sense. Like, it, like you got people from all over the Roman Empire traveling to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, right? And they're not going to travel with the animal that they can sacrifice if they can just buy one and get there, right? I mean, that, like, if, if I'm living in that world, that's the option I choose. How about you? Like, I don't want to travel with the goat and make sure it survives a thousand mile trip. Like, buy a goat when you get there. That's way easier. And money changes. Like, how many of y'all have traveled in an accident? Like, you get there, you change over some money. At least that's how it worked before credit card companies stopped off, like, charging you for international rates, right? Like, that's the way the world works. You, you get there, you change over some money, because you want to buy a couple, a couple of things. That's how the world works. And a lot of people have speculated over the years that, that probably the vendors and the money changers were gouging people. Like, they raised the rates and were taking advantage of people. And, and honestly, that makes a lot of sense, too. Like, if you think about all the things that we know about the ancient world, like, you might think that that wasn't going on. If you create a system where people didn't travel with their goat but bought one when you got there, like, aren't you charging them double for that goat? If there's a specific coin that has to be offered in the, the temple and you've got to have an exchange rate for that, aren't you going to stick it to them just a little bit and make yourself a little extra money? Like, like this is a for-profit business, guys. You've got to do something with this. But again, it's, we, we can get lost in that problem and miss the bigger problem. Because 
Jesus actually tells us what the problem is. In verse 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. Luke records just a tiny bit more than Matthew does here. Luke tells us that Jesus said that my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. And that is a direct quote from Isaiah 56. Let's read real quick. You can turn if you want. We've got it on the screen, right? Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his, uh, be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples, peoples and nations. There is the same word. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Where is Jesus standing when he quotes Isaiah 56? According to the Gentiles. Where is Jesus standing when he sees money changers and sacrifice sellers? According to the Gentiles. We're talking about the one place specifically set apart by God. Specifically set apart by God for the purpose of giving the nations an opportunity to worship Him and come to Him and be saved by Him. That's where Jesus is saved. And instead of the beauty and the goodness and the grace of God being seen in that moment, the Gentiles are met with, your money isn't good enough, buy ours. Your goat isn't good enough, buy ours. And King Jesus goes off. That's what happens in this moment. And so Matthew tells us in verse 12 that Jesus drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeon. Jesus cleans the house. He will not allow anything or anyone to get in the way of the nation's coming. This is far bigger than exchanging some money in the lobby. Their functional system, while yes, functional, got in the way of his plan from before the foundation of the world. That's a problem. So we're told Jesus leaves there and goes back to Bethany to lodge for the night. So here's a question. How do you think the religious leaders in the temple? thought about Jesus' little outburst. Like, if that were happening here today, right? Somebody just walked in off the street and started flipping over chairs and grabbing everybody out of here. Like, how should I respond? I mean, is it any surprise that they begin looking for a way to have this guy silence the good? See, the first time that King Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he does so with humility and mounted on a donkey, but listen, he also comes to pick a fight. He comes to pick a fight and to an end with him being crucified for the purpose of saving sinners. But the Bible also promises that Jesus is going to ride into town second time. And that time will not be in humility. The Bible says that the second time he will be victorious and mounted on a war horse, but on the end of that. 
and he will again come to pick a fight. But that fight will be for the judgment of sinners. The king will come into his kingdom. There is soon approached you day. It will be a good day for those who are kingdom citizens. When the already but not yet kingdom will finally just be the kingdom. So what do we do with this? Like how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God and do that by repenting of sin and celebrating Jesus the same way those followers on the hillside. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, save us, son of David. Do you see and respond to Jesus this morning as the part of triumphant king? Second, I think our second response is just to honestly answer the question, if Jesus were to walk in here this morning, would you be pleased with how we present him to those who don't know him yet? I think good churches ask that question regularly, often, honestly. Would Jesus be pleased with the way we present him to those who don't know him yet, or would he drive us all out of here and flip over some tables and make a point? We won't ever have movie changers set up in the morning, I promise. But it's just as possible for us to do functional, seemingly wise things that end up creating a barrier to those who don't know. So we ask honest questions about our heart and our practice. I think if we're scared of asking those questions, we're in that place. Do we look at our own lives and practice with a critical eye? What would Jesus call us to within this morning? I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, well, a couple of leaders down from here to talk, pray with you, that was certainly this morning. If you're here today, you're not apologist. I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word too. You do that by meeting Jesus, by repenting of sin and calling on him as Lord. He came to die for the express purpose of paying for your sin and reconciling you to himself. That Jesus who rode into town on a donkey was making a beeline to the cross. There was something he had to do. It was to pay the sin debt that you and I owe. He could not be stopped. He would not be slowed down. He went directly to the cross. So because he laid down his own life and because he rose victoriously again over that death, you and I can be reconciled to God. Romans 10 says it this way, that by believing that God raised him from the dead and confessing with the mouth of Christ Jesus. That's a simple thing to do, but it is not a lot to do. But I love you all to do it. Maybe today is the day that you're ready to respond to the grace that King Jesus offered. It's better to respond now than when we come back to I'm going to pray for this. I'll be down front here because I'm talking. So let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you do this. Thank you for being God who fulfills every promise. And everything you said your Messiah would be, everything you promised that Jesus would fulfill, he came and did inside it. Jesus, you are the divine king. You are the prophesied king. You are the righteous king. You are the king of peace. You are the forever king. You got those of us in here who 
know you, submit to you, and call you, Lord God Ground us in that truth this morning. Give us eyes to see that you are the fulfillment of every promise. That you are the yes and amen. Now show us where we need repentance. Show us where we need to change course as individuals and corporately as a church. God, you have a concern for your house. And while we are not comfortable, we do want to put you on the sled correctly and clearly. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, you make yourself known to them. You open eyes to see in heart and you call people to yourself and you expand your community. Jesus, in your name,